ago, Lindsay and I were asked if we'd be willing to speak in Sunday services in our local church congregation. It wasn't a big deal. An ask like this is expected in the LDS culture when you move into a new area. It's a good way to get to know the people in the congregation with new faces. Topics are usually associated with talks given by LDS church leaders, either talks given from recent church conferences or historically significant talks given from years previous. Now, it was a week later when Brother Willis, the individual who had previously asked us to speak, approached me with our assigned topics. Lindsay's topic came from a talk given from the most recent church conference titled Drawing Closer to the Savior, a perfectly nonspecific subject, which means that she'd be using a previous talk. Then, Brother Willis informed me that I was to speak on the virtue of kindness. And at that point, (laughs) I started to laugh. And before I could stop myself, I blurted out, are you serious? To which Brother Willis paused for a moment and then slightly confused asked, uh, is that a problem? Because for a moment, I literally thought he was joking. I'd forgotten that this was not an individual that knew me at all. This was just a guy happy to find somebody willing to fill in a speaking slot and probably figured kindness would be the speaking equivalent of a lofted softball for a willing volunteer. And who could blame him? Because honestly, what type of person considers kindness a difficult subject? So, In the moment, I told Brother Willis I was willing to speak on the topic. The associated talk was given by Elder Joseph B. Worthland from a 2002 LDS conference. But honestly, I was torn. I mean, if it's not evident, I take gospel discussion pretty seriously. And the term kindness, as it's thrown around in our culture's rhetoric, has been a particular point of irritation to me for several years. Now, I shared my speaking dilemma with several people who know my mind on the issue. And their general response was was laughter at first. And then, oh, oh man, you're screwed. One person did ask, even before I'd started writing, for a transcript of the talk. I thought he was joking. But... After giving the talk, I realized he was not, nor were other people out of the congregation who asked for the same after the talk had been given. Because 
This is not an issue that is merely of my own manufacturing. This is something that people are truly struggling with. People who love God, who love their fellow man, people who, above all, want to be productive in their gospel practice as it concerns themselves and it concerns others. Compassionate people who understand that what often is passed for kindness in the world today is often nothing more than conveniently enabling delusion in another, merely to avoid the discomfort of having to engage in difficult but productive conversations themselves. And that, in some cases, becoming more and more frequent, that kindness is now being used as the term to justify the manipulation of the mentally ill. This being especially evident as a practice of many major corporations. Now, all of this said, I decided I would put myself out there. I would speak on kindness. I would enter the ring. That I was either the worst person to speak on the topic or the person most suited for it. That I was willing to either light my own funeral pyre or ignite a desperately needed discussion on what kindness means when spoken by the mouth of God. Now, this and the following few episodes are that talk as I would have liked to have given it had the time been available to me. I should also mention the congregation, save a few individuals, were not familiar with my mental health history with major depression until just before I spoke. Lindsay gave her address to the same audience just prior to my comments on kindness. Her talk, which is in a slightly amended form on thebruised.com blog page titled Shining Light into the Darkness, told of our family's experience with my battle with treatment-resistant depression. It was in this newly introduced understanding of my personal history that the congregation then had the opportunity to hear me offer my conclusions on the virtue of kindness. Before discussing the topic, I'd like to share four items, a couple of quotes, a definition on ideas that will shed a bit further light on what we will discuss today. Item number one, a quote, Sun Shu, the art of war. All warfare is based on deception. Item two, definition, semantics. The historical and psychological study of the meaning of words to also include the study of changes in the meaning of words over time. Third item, Mark chapter four, verse 14. The sower soweth the word. Item four, Matthew 13, verses 24 through 25. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. In the early 1950s, a new word began to crop up. Doublespeak. What is doublespeak? It's the use of language that is deliberately constructed to disguise or distort the actual meaning of a given statement. Common devices used for doublespeak would be intentional ambiguity or 
the use of euphemisms. The definition source there, Wiktionary. Now, someone hearing this definition for the first time might understandably ask, well, isn't that just lying? And to this, I would have to say yes and no. And that's actually the trick of doublespeak. The answer is actually somewhere in between. This is where doublespeak operates, in subjective subtlety. A few obvious examples. Doublespeak occurs everywhere, often in occupational spaces. As a pediatric dentist, I use it every day. For example, the piece of equipment I most often use, it's not a drill. It's a handpiece. And when kids ask me, hey, hey Dr. B, are you going to give me a shot? My response is commonly something like, what? A shot? I don't even know what you're talking about. And they'll turn around to the mom and say something like, um, we're going to give your child an injection. Okay. Now the terms I've used there may seem just jargon, dental jargon, and that is correct. The terms used are occupation specific words that refine communication in a technically complex discipline, but there, there's a slight difference between jargon and doublespeak. So I should clarify here. When I use the word injection, it is jargon when I use it in profession-related discussions between another dental worker. It's a technical term of our trade that's useful for more effective communication. However, when I'm using the word injection in place of shot, when I'm staring into the mouth of a five-year-old, I do so with the intent to subtly influence the child's emotions. It's this subtle but intentional swing of a listener's emotions that constitutes doublespeak. Now, I mentioned that the term doublespeak did not exist until the 1950s. Its emergence was timely. The first half of the 40s was spent embroiled in war. The second half spent trying to understand how that war could have been prevented. The why, the what, the how of fascism. Why did it take hold? What caused it to flourish? How did such horrible desires infect so many people? In the mid to late 40s, the footage, the documents, the first-hand accounts began to tell how totalitarianism had infected the industrial nations of Germany, Japan, Italy, and Spain. However, it would be decades before the mountain of information left by those regimes could be effectively coalesced in the works for public education. And so, the task of bringing to light the psychological methods of Nazi totalitarianism fell to a work of fiction. George Orwell's 1984. 1984 is a dystopian novel set in what was then a not-too-distant future. In this fictional future, Great Britain had fallen under the control of a totalitarian megastate called Oceania. By describing the day-to-day -day life of its main character, Orwell effectively introduces the reader to the many genuine methods by which 
real totalitarian states had secured control and maintained power over the first half of the 20th century. Orwell's fictional Oceania was patterned after Hitler's Nazi Germany and Stalin's Soviet Union. Orwell actually having firsthand experience with the tactics of both of these regimes during his military service in the Spanish Civil War. 1984 described many manipulative methods by which control can be maintained over an intelligent people. Two specific methods portrayed in 1984 distinctly stood out to the 1950s reader. These were practices the reader would have found similar to practices undertaken by Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany. The terms Orwell assigned to the two particular methods were new speak and double think. With these terms, Orwell described two slightly different mechanisms of social control. Both mechanisms leveraged the human desire to be socially accepted, to belong. By using that desire alongside one, state-sponsored social pressures, and two, the state's manipulative management of basic human needs, providing food, water, and shelter at no cost to citizens compliant with the party. Using those tactics, those in power subtly but effectively accomplished the unthinkable. Unthinkable number one, the people in power changed words. Better stated, they changed the meaning of words. Quote, it's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. Of course, the great wastage is in verbs and adjectives, but there are hundreds of nouns that can be got rid of as well. It isn't only the synonyms. There are also the antonyms. After all, what justification is there for a word which is simply the opposite of some other word? A word contains its opposite in itself. Take good, for instance. If you have a word like good, what need is there for a word like bad? Ungood will do just as well. Better, because it's an exact opposite which the other is not, close quote. Unthinkable number two, those in power repressed critical thinking among their citizens. Quote, the whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they'll exist only in newspeak versions, not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be. The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought as we understand it now. Orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. Close quote. And unthinkable three. Those in power altered history, or what the public remembered as history. Quote, 
Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. And if all others accept the lie which the party imposed, if all records told the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. Who controls the present, controls the past. Close quote. Readers of the 1950s recognized these tactics because of their similarity to what they'd seen in fascist and communist communities, such as the mass educational system enacted by the Nazis, known as the Jungvolk for children, and Hitler Youth for teenagers. It was this recognition that these tactics were actually real phenomena, were already in use in other countries. This recognition led to the creation of a new word, a mashup of Orwell's two fictional terms of doublethink and newspeak, doublespeak. It is well known that communists love to give names to important institutions of society that imply exactly the virtue they desire their citizens to think the institution encompasses, a practice in authoritarian irony. For example, from its inception in 1912 and through today, the official newspaper of the Communist Party of Russia has carried the same name, Pravda. Translation, Truth. An appropriate name for your source of state-sponsored information. Another example is the word democracy and its meaning over time in the United States. According to W. Cleon Skousen in his book, The 5,000-Year Leap, the Founding Fathers were adamant that the country was to be a republic, not a democracy. James Madison comprehensively explains in the Federalist Papers that the anticipated growth and expansion of the United States would result in violence and destruction, as previous democracies had under the rule of the majority. Instead, a republic was founded where the people would elect representatives to govern, allowing growth without mobocracy. However, the term democracy came in vogue at the beginning of the 20th century. Socialists who wanted to distance themselves from the violence of the early union of Soviet socialist republics looked for a new moniker. They began to use the word democracy justifying its use by reasoning that a state that absorbs all of its resources within its borders is a state where the resources belong to, quote, all the people, close quote. President Woodrow Wilson gave the term democracy a real boost when he commonly stated that the Allied fight during World War I was to, quote, make the world safe for democracy, close quote. From there, the term democracy maneuvered itself into the diction of our societies and school books until today, where most of society mistakenly identifies the United States as a democracy instead of the constitutional republic that she is. But 
It's the Nazis who lay claim to the most repugnant doublespeak term of all time. The Final Solution. The Final Solution was the Nazi codename for a plan to exterminate all Jews within German grasp, what we know today as the Holocaust. The codename, Final Solution, helped those who planned and carried out the operation to talk of genocide as if it were as sensible as resolving a math problem. After the publishing of 1984, the word doublespeak quickly became a real-world term for the deliberate use of disguised or distorted language. The example shared here, words from a dentist's office all the way to words used in a concentration camp, show the spectrum of doublespeak's application. Like all tools, it has the potential for good and for evil. But most important is to understand that it exists, that it's commonly used, and that it has a proclivity towards manipulation. The tactic of subtle speaking has long been in practice. Orwell merely shed a greater light on something as old as communication itself. Such tactics are evident in Genesis, used in the drama of the Garden of Eden. Now, when we recount that story, we easily identify the subtle persuasion used by the serpents. He shall not surely die. Your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Interesting that Satan incited the fall from paradise by misrepresenting the characteristics of vegetation. Many years later, during his ministry on earth, Christ warned of a similar tactic used by the enemy. Agricultural warfare with a twist. Here's the parable of the wheat and tares. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, uh, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? For whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Much of this parable I will leave unpacked, leaving my greater analysis out for a possible maybe bonus episode. But there are four main points relative to what could be termed a warfare of words. Number one, there exists a conflict. Number two, 
the householder is aware of the conflict and familiar with the enemy's method of sabotage. Number three, the servants are naive to the conflict as well as to the method of sabotage. Number four, the method of the enemy. There's much discussion as to whether the tares are problematic because of their ability to imitate wheat or because of their ability to entangle their roots with the roots of wheat. Either way, the goal is to entice those of the household into reacting hastily, just as the servants proposed. The greatest danger to the wheat is not the presence of the tares. It is the instinct of the uneducated of the household. Such a tactic would achieve what is termed in warfare as supreme excellence, reducing your opponent in strength or resources without engaging in a fight. In fact, here's the quote from Sun Chu, The Art of War. To fight and conquer in all your battles is not supreme excellence. Supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. The prevailing Christian interpretation of this parable is that the tares' noxious nature lies in its similarity to wheat, an insidious imitation. To the untrained eye, a tear is indistinguishable from a stalk of wheat until a particular time of differentiation. To remove a tear before this time, even with good intentions, is an action just as likely to destroy a stalk of wheat as it is to get rid of a single weed. It is to games of imitation of which the enemy finds us most vulnerable. And no more so than in the realm of words. For this reason, I find it no coincidence that in scripture, a seed is often used metaphorically to represent the word. In particular, words of virtue are especially effective targets to the enemy. It is his ability to first mimic and then distort the meanings of words of virtue that make us most vulnerable to weeding out our own essential resources. An especial virtue of vulnerability throughout all of history and one of express interest in current events? Kindness. This is the end of part one of a series of episodes titled The Complexity of Kindness. Kindness.